This week, the Comics Guys explain Milestone Comics. Hello and welcome back, everyone. Thank you for the introduction, Ben. Yes, this time we will be uh, talking about Dwayne McDuffie, uh, best known for, of course, being one of the founders of uh, Milestone Comics. So, Darren, where should we start talking about Dwayne McDuffie? Well, first, I want to, you know, kind of tell a personal story about this. I had the good fortune back in 2005 to be a guest at a convention where Dwayne was also a guest. And so I got to spend a lovely weekend, you know, chatting with him and uh, learning a great deal about how, you know, his career had gone and kind of, you know, like the comics business of the early 2000s, basically. We were, it was a show called Trinity Con in Detroit, Michigan. And the main guests, they had like a, a gaming guest, a comics guest, and an a anime guest. And so it was myself and Dwayne and a guy named Johnny Bosch, who was the uh, Black Power Ranger in one of the Power Ranger series. And it was a it was a lovely con, but it was run by kids. Basically, they were just kind of like their I think it was their second con they had ever put on. And so they had big ideas, big ambitions for the show, and not quite everything worked, but they did a wonderful job of kind of like filling it in. The first night that we were all supposed to be there, uh, the guests for the con and like the senior crew of the con were all supposed to go out to dinner together. And for various reasons that fell through, like, you know, that some of them couldn't leave, they couldn't get out there, we couldn't actually get, you know, people off to the show. And so rather than taking us out for dinner, uh, several of the con, uh, you know, uh, workers there took the three of us, the three guests, to one of their mother's house to have like homemade lasagna uh, and garlic bread. And it was wonderful. Right. It was just like, this is the a very different con experience than, you know, like we uh, than we usually have. But part of what was great about it. Definitely a once in a, you know, once one time only thing. You know, right. Exactly. That house any other time. Yeah. It was so sweet and so charming. And, you know, mom was delightful. I've forgotten her name, but she was it was great because the show was so kind of like oddly, you know, put together. The guests had an awful lot of downtime. You know, to just like hang out and talk to each other, basically. And so I got to, you know, spend the better part of a weekend, um, you know, asking Dwayne questions. And so a chunk of what comes in this next two episodes comes from, you know, like stories that he told me personally. So that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, Dwayne McDuffie is born in Detroit, as we said. His family was uh, still in Detroit. So that was why, uh, you know, he was willing to come out to a relatively small show like this uh, in 1962. Um, he unfortunately passed in 2011, um, so he had just turned 49 um, when he died. Uh, his parents were uh, Leroy and Edna McDuffie. Um, his father had uh, several children uh, in other relationships besides his relationship with Edna, and one of his uh, one of Leroy's children is uh, Keegan Michael Key from the Key and Peele. Um, comedy team and but they didn't know that until just a few years ago oh, right okay. like he had uh, uh keegan had been uh adopted right like his uh you know he was, he was given up by his parents who clearly weren't married since leroy was married to edna um and it wasn't until keegan actually kind of like researched you know his uh his biological family um you know as an adult basically that he discovered that he and Dwayne were half brothers um and so like they kind of he kind of reached out to them and the two of them you know like did actually briefly uh you know have some time that you know to to get together themselves 
That's awesome. I'm glad it happened before he, uh, you know, passed. Before he passed, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Dwayne was an excellent student, uh, you know, all through school, went to Roper High School in, uh, in, in Detroit, and then went to the uh, University of Michigan, uh, where he got his bachelor in English in just three years of, of a four-year program, and then decided at that point that he would try uh, physics, and he was going to get a master's in physics. Um, because he was also interested in science, uh, you know, on top of like his writing skills. And it was at uh, U- University of Michigan while he was getting his master's where he had the first kind of his experience and an experience that would kind of like come back several times of doing work that went uncredited and unpaid for that somebody else, you know, kind of like took, uh, took, took credit for, took advantage of. Um, some of the work that he was doing in his master's program, um, you know, with a with a senior faculty advisor in that program, the senior faculty advisor was designing the guidance systems of Patriot missiles, and used some of uh, Dwayne's work without crediting or giving him any pay for it, and that kind of shook him up pretty seriously when he when he discovered that that was what was going on he felt that that was you know unethical and he was very disappointed with the uh the school for not you know kind of like cracking down on that and 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 decided uh it, it kind of soured him on the whole idea of like working in uh physics in science professionally um and obviously if you have read uh the first two issues of the comic hardware that he wrote um you can see it it's kind of the same story kind of you know like blown up to superhero standards right like the idea of you know a a, a corporation basically kind of you know taking the credit for um and the money for uh the you know the creation of the lead character basically is uh, is is kind of like the, the the starting premise of the hardware series um, so that definitely comes from something very kind of, you know, personal in his life. So he has kind of a, you know, change of heart, basically. He's now in his early 20s. It's, uh, you know, 1983, 1984 or so. Um, and he decides instead, uh, since he's, you know, phenomenally intelligent in a, and, and talented and interested in a wide range of fields, that rather than finishing his master's, he will go to New York and he will study uh, film at Tisch at uh, New York University's film school, which is one of like the, you know, kind of major film schools uh, in the country. And uh, so he goes there, but he's at this point, like I said, he's 23 or 24. So he's older than most of the other kids who are studying at Tisch. And he's kind of done with uh, living in a dorm and, you know, living in a dorm with, you know, roommates who aren't old enough to drink and that sort of thing. It seemed to, you know, he was, he was kind of like ready to be beyond that. So he uh, decided that he was going to kind of extend his program and only take a couple of classes a semester. Um, you know, it didn't matter to him how long it was going to take to, to do this. And he would get uh, an outside job, uh, you know, part time so that he could afford to have, uh, you know, an apartment and not live on campus. So he took a gig while he was taking classes at Tisch. He for his first uh, editing gig was as a copy editor at the Investment Dealers Digest, which was like a you know magazine that uh, was for you know the in, investment funds for like fund managers and that sort of thing to you know like how how to like add uh, different funds to your portfolio, your stock portfolios, and that sort of thing. 
Um, and while he was working there as a copy editor, basically, very you know, had nothing to do with the actual uh, uh, content of the magazine or anything, he learned about an uh, editing job, an assistant editing job at Marvel Comics, which was literally the building next door from the building that he was working in. And so he went to work at Marvel. He took that job because he had been a comic book fan all of his life and thought that this was this was great. And so he became the assistant editor uh, to Bob Budiansky, who was one of the editors at Marvel. And this is in 1987. And um, he, you know, was basically kind of the, the junior guy on staff. Um, his primary job when he was working, Budiansky didn't have any titles as the editor. Um, he was the special projects editor. So uh, the first work that Dwayne McDuffie ever did in comics was on the special projects line, including the first line of Marvel trading cards. He was the editor on the trading cards themselves, uh, you know, like getting getting those put together. That's a cool gig. Yeah, it was. And like I said, he, he at the time was not thinking that this was going to be a full-time thing for him or a lifetime thing, but it was a job that, you know, was fun and paid the bills while he was going to film school. The longer he was there, very quickly, he discovered he really had kind of like a, a, an affinity for the job um, at Marvel and, the, and the, uh, a passion for um, writing it. And eventually wound up dropping out of Tish as well to continue working full-time at Marvel to basically expand his, uh, his, his job at Marvel. And so within a year or two of being at Marvel, he had kind of like moved on to both being an assistant editor working on uh, comics lines, but also submitting scripts and uh, doing some, some uh, writing for Marvel. So uh, this makes him, at the time, Literally the only African-American uh, employee at Marvel, right, in, you know, in 1987-88. There had been Christopher Priest, who at the time was going by the name Jim Owsley, um, had been the only African-American in the Marvel offices for several years before that and had just been fired as the editor of the Spider-Man line in 1986. Um, Owsley had been there since 1978. He had uh, come on at the age of 17. He had been an intern and an assistant working on Crazy Magazine, which was Marvel's version of, uh, you know, Mad or Cracked or something like that. And that was in 1978 um, when he, like, you know, first started working while he was still in high school. And Owsley became the first black editor in comics at all at Marvel in 1983 when he was still just 22 years old. Um, and if you read, we're going to take a little kind of side detour into uh, uh, Christopher Priest's career. He's a just a fountain of great stories about Marvel in the early 80s and the kind of just like incidental racial ignorance that was just commonplace in the office at that time from an office that was pretty much, you know, 98 or whatever percent white. Um, and was you know not uh, not not aware that there was there was a lot of unintentional we think racism uh, that took place at Marvel um, in that stretch. Uh, Priest has a tells a story of how there were when the Heroes for Hope African Famine Relief Charity book came out in 1985, and it was an all-star list 
of you know Marvel creators and uh, independent creators, freelancers, etc., who were put together to do this comic that was you know kind of like in a in a period where charity work for Africa was kind of like all the rage, right? It was when We Are the World came out and Do They Know It's Christmas and all of this stuff. So the Marvel one was called Heroes for Hope, and the list of all of the creators um, that worked on Heroes for Hope was completely white, one hundred percent. They did not invite a single, you know, like creator of color, writer or artist uh, to work on the African Relief Project. And so he and Larry Hama, who was the only other non-white person in the office, he was Japanese, a Japanese-American, uh, started making jokes in the office, uh, you know, after they had both kind of, you know, like not been invited to be involved in this project or whatever, that they themselves were going to do their own charity book for poor white Appalachian farmers, <laughs> which is hilarious. And, but of course they were just kidding. They were just, you know, like kind of, you know, muses sharing their, you know, their, their mild resentment and just, isn't this hilarious how ignorant Marvel is. Um, and some editors there overheard him and, you know, overheard this discussion and took it completely the wrong way and thought that, uh, he and Hama or, you know, priest at least, uh, was, uh, organizing a black creator walkout from Marvel or from Marvel and DC at the same time for this. And he wound up getting kind of like called into the office and, you know, uh, read the riot act for, you know, thinking that uh, he was going to, you know, organize a general strike for uh, creators of color. And, you know, his response was, we were just kidding, first of all, one, and two, what we were kidding about was your stupid Heroes for Hope, you know, operation that, you know, at Marvel like literally had not noticed that they had not offered any of the you know positions any of the jobs for for heroes for hope to any creators of color at all so owsley had this you know at the owsley christopher priest had this kind of you know sketchy relationship with marvel for the you know years that he worked there uh you know for about three years he's still only 25 when he finds up winds up getting fired um and there's a year basically in which marvel has no black creators and then they hire Dwayne. Um, there had been and still were black freelancers that had worked for Marvel at this point when Dwayne uh, got there. The first uh, black freelancer working for Marvel is probably Billy Graham. We're not quite certain of this. Uh, there are certainly some freelancers uh, that we don't actually know anything about uh, in the early days of Marvel. Um, so we can't kind of like confirm or deny that any of them uh might have been uh creators of color of some sort but the first one that we know about is billy graham who in 1972 started doing heroes for hire um as uh, the blue cage uh art ron wilson was first brought in in 1973 keith pollard did his first work uh for marvel in 1974 and so after that uh you know there's uh there there, there are several freelance creators, but there's nobody in the office, right? There's nobody uh, except for Dwayne at this point, um, starting in 1987. So he goes to work, you know, like I said, his first editing gig is doing cards, but he gets really interested in it. He goes full time and starts kind of like assisting other editors on, on comics and stuff. One of the first people that he winds up working with is Mark Gruenwald. Um, and Gruenwald definitely kind of like sees not only is he a, you know, skilled editor, but he's a skilled writer too, and starts offering him short gigs as a writer. Uh, the first thing that he wrote that was published by Marvel was in 1988 in the Marvel age annual, 
he did a five-page story that introduced his creation with Ernie Cologne as, as the artist of damage control as a, a as a concept, right? Like that was completely from him. Um, and he basically did a five-page gag introduction of the of the group in this, you know, kind of like weird uh, you know, annual for an anthology title. And it was a tryout. Clearly, it was, you know, like, let's see if this is, you know, if, if people think that a, you know, straight up comedy series set in the Marvel Universe is a thing that, uh, you know, anybody would be willing to, to buy. And even though Marvel Age did not have uh, an enormous circulation or anything compared to most of the other titles that, that Marvel was producing at the time, it got rave reviews. The people who did read it loved it, right? And so within the next three years, they did three more full-on limited series of Damage Control. Uh, the first two were done by Dwayne with Ernie Cologne on the art. And then the third one, uh, Cologne had kind of like dropped out from it. And Kyle Baker did the art on the last one that was done. Um, and so that kind of, you know, introduced him uh, to, you know, to, to writing for Marvel. Gruenwald was also at the time the lead writer on the solo Avengers series, right? Like Gruenwald at this point was doing Captain America, um, solo Avengers, and I think he had started Quasar by that point. Um, and solo Avengers was a series that had Hawkeye as the lead, and then always had a backup feature of one of the Avengers, one of the like lesser known Avengers, uh, who would get a short story in the back. And Gruenwald gave Dwayne several of the scripts for the, uh, you know, let him do the scripts for several of the backup features, right? Like he never got to write the lead, um, but he did one for, you know, Wonder Man in uh, Solo Avengers number 13, right? Um, so uh, at this point, 1989, he gets promoted from assistant editor to actual editor. Um, he still doesn't have like a line like the other uh, several of the other editors do. He's still kind of like doing special projects, but the special projects program is kind of expanding. There's a bunch of new things that Marvel is doing uh, using, you know, its IP basically. And so he's doing a lot of work for that. Plus he's also doing all of the writing. Um, it's at this point, it's in 1989, early 1989, when he has his direct encounter with Mark Gruenwald and Gregory Wright about the use of Lamar Hoskins, the naming of Lamar Hoskins as Bucky in Captain America series. And if you go back to our Falcon and the Winter Soldier episode, we talk about this uh, in kind of like greater detail. But basically, you know, the explanation was that, uh, you know, Mark Grunwald was adding a new African-American character to the Captain America series um, who was going to be the sidekick of John Walker, who was taking over the Captain America title, you know, the, the, the Captain America uniform and, 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 and name, basically, for the government. And since Captain America's previous sidekick, his 1940s, you know, sidekick was named Bucky, um, Mark Grunwald was just like, well, we'll call him Bucky, but he'll be, you know, an adult sidekick, right? And as a white man from Wisconsin, uh, Mark Grunwald had no idea that that could be considered racist or offensive to actual black people uh, in any way, <laughs> right? And it was Mark Gruenwald, uh, you know, or it was uh, uh, Dwayne as the only black man in the office, basically, who had to come up to him and say, you know, Mark, this is awful. 
<laughs> right? Like you've given the African-American hero, not just a name that is in itself offensive, the idea of, you know, like using somebody, uh, calling somebody Bucky, but you've given him the name of a child, right? Like you've, you know, basically, uh, uh, you know, infantilized him while also being racist to him. And Gruenwald was horrified. He had no idea that he had done that, right? Like it was completely news to him. So within, you know, two issues, three issues, I think, uh, you know, by that point, it had moved that far down the, the, the schedule. Gruenwald gets in there and fixes it um, and changes his name from Bucky to Battlestar, which is how he has uh, stayed ever since. But also at that point now, uh, Dwayne has picked up a bit of a reputation, right? He's just a kid. He's 27, 28, whatever he is. And, uh, you know, he's he's the guy who, uh, you know, has concerns about, uh, you know, racism in the comics there, right? So now we get to later in 1989. And uh, Spider-Man has just reintroduced Rocket Racer as a character in the series, who was one of the most ridiculous 70s, you know, like villains, uh, had just been brought back. And the New Warriors had just debuted in Thor, featuring their African American, their lone African American character, Night Thrasher. And so, noting, uh, you know, Dwayne, Dwayne was once again thought that this was, you know, perhaps a bit of a problem. And he created uh, a fake uh, series proposal that he sent to management for Marvel that he was saying that uh, he was going to create a new series for Marvel. Um, and it was going to be called Teenage Negro Ninja Thrashers, because he noted, uh, you know, in the proposal that 25% of the American African American Marvel supers that were actually active at the time had quote skateboard related powers. And he was like, "Well, this is, you know, this is this is a bit problematic." Uh, so, in his fake proposal, he uh, created uh, a couple of new characters. Uh, he, he figured that he would team up Night Thrasher and Rocket Racer and a new black character who was called Dark Wheelie uh, and then their mysterious leader who would be known only as, quote, that mysterious black guy on a skateboard. <laughs> and his pitch, and I'm quoting directly from the pitch because I've seen it here. Uh, this is uh, you know, uh, the, the actual quotes that he, that he says in it, that this comic will include all of these popular elements, uh, circa 1974 clothing and hairstyles, Bizarre speech patterns unrecognizable by any member of any culture on the planet. A smart white friend to help them out of the trouble they get into. They're heroes who could be you, if you were black, I mean. And they will have an attractive white female friend to calm them down when they get too excited. It then ended, the proposal then ends, have I made my point? (laughs) Uh, And obviously he had, uh, you know, that's... uh, um, Marvel, uh, you know, kind of like backed off on some of the stuff and, uh, you know, made a point of, you know, like they, they did, you know, try to do better. But also at this point now, Dwayne has now kind of like picked up a reputation, right? That he's, he's going to be trouble for this sort of thing. So in the alternate universe where they don't get it and they accept this pitch, does he <laughs> write this topic? <laughs> and, and why do I... Why do I read every issue of it? Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, just to just to see like how awful he could make it. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I, I, you know, it obviously not, but uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure like if they had accepted it, that was the day he quit. Right, like so rather than yeah, actually do it. 
but he's still getting work, right? They are still giving him work, but they're clearly not going to give him lead stuff at this point, right? You know, he's uh, he, he's kind of you know like making a making a name for himself, both good and bad, as a you know occasional troublemaker. But his stuff is is doing pretty well. Um, he uh, gets the uh, Captain Marvel special, uh, you know, solo issue um, in 1989. At the end of 1989, the Monica Rambo um, solo. Gets to do the Deathlock limited series, and then becomes the main writer for uh, Volume Two of the Deathlock series. And Gruenwald continues to give him occasional Avengers work, right? Like he did a couple of uh, the Avengers annuals, um, an Iron Man story here and there. You know, he does a, a couple of uh, a couple of different things. He also kind of expands his remit beyond superheroes and goes over to Epic, which is their you know kind of like fancy. Uh, uh, direct sales only line and does some Hellraiser stuff actually for the Clive Barker Hellraiser license that, uh, that, that Epic had at this point. And this, uh, you know, now, now it's 90, 1990, 91 into 92. Uh, you know, he's been there a few years and he is, uh, you know, starting to, as we say, starting to get a bit of a name for himself. Um, he keeps trying the entire time that he's in Marvel uh, to get Luke Cage. Because Luke Cage was always his favorite character as a kid, and he's always wanted to fix him, right? He's always wanted to make the Cage uh, uh, character, uh, you know, kind of like less, uh, kind of like stuck in time, right? You know, to kind of like modernize him and make him into a more realistic character to get rid of the chain and the headband and the, you know, sweet Christmas and all of that stuff. Right, and actually make Cage into a, into a character that, uh, you know, like black kids could actually look up to. And he says, uh, I pitched this approximately every six months for five years uh, to try to get, you know, Luke Cage as, as a character. And eventually I was told by a friendly higher up, and we're pretty sure we know who that is, but they've never actually said, uh, that, quote, they're never going to let you write that character. They don't like your attitude and they don't want all that black stuff in there. So despite his efforts, he is uh, unable to get hold of, you know, like what certainly one of the two or three most important black characters at Marvel, they simply will not give to a black writer at that point. Um, and, you know, they certainly weren't giving Storm or Black Panther to black writers yet anyway, though that will happen very soon after he leaves. So in 1990, he finally, uh, you know, resigns as an editor for Marvel. He still does some freelance work for them for a bit, but he, he goes freelance um, as, a, as a creator. And he uh, gets together with some uh, close friends of his, uh, including Jim Owsley, who at this point has now changed his name to Christopher Priest, and decide that what they want to do is to create their own comics line. They want to, uh, you know, like uh, create a, a, an entire run, an entire set of comics um, that will be a, you know, combined universe and they'll have their own kind of, you know, like publication operation for it. Uh, that will be entirely, uh, you know, uh, uh, black characters, because as he says, the you know, like part of the the problem with black superheroes at the big two, at the you know, at at, at Marvel and DC, is that because there are so few of them, each one has to kind of like represent all of black culture, right? Everything that they do has to be kind of like universal because they're the only ones, you know, kind of like you know standing out for this right like everything that happens 
to Black Panther or to Black Lightning or something or to Storm or something like that, right? Like that's what's happening to all of Black culture. That's the way that it's represented in the comics. Whereas if you had a line that had 15 or 20 or more, uh, you know, like black characters and other characters of color as Milestone like doesn't kind of, you know, accept that it's remit is only for black characters, but you could have a much wider range of expressions of those characters. You could have a, a broad spectrum of people and types and that sort of thing and not have to worry about each one having to carry the load of being I'm the lone black character here, right? So they decide they're going to start a company called Milestone Comics. And basically the original group of Milestone Comics was Dwayne and Christopher Priest and Dennis Cowan, uh, who was also um, a, a you know, very successful uh, freelancer uh, you know, for a number of different operations. Michael Davis, who was a less well-known uh, creator, but was, you know, friends with all of them, basically. And a guy named Derek T. Dingle. And Derek T. Dingle uh, was not a comics pro, but he was on their board and on their operation because he worked, he was a comic book fan and he worked for Money Magazine. Uh, so he knew how to get, you know, kind of like magazines printed and put out and that sort of thing. And he was also considerably, considerably richer. <laughs> you know, than the other four guys who were all, you know, like making a living. I mean, they were all living in New York City, working full time, but none of them really had kind of like the money uh, to start up a comic book company on their own. And none of them really had connections to go outside and get like big investment. Right. So Derek was kind of the money guy for the operation. And basically, they started meeting in Dennis Cowan's living room in 1991 and started making plans of what the project was going to look like. Um, Priest, Christopher Priest was going to be the editor-in-chief of this group. Um, but he actually, in the end, was the first one out. Uh, before they even incorporated, at that point, uh, Priest was uh, had gotten an editorial job at DC. And so uh, he decided that uh you know he was unwilling to give that up and give up the you know the very solid salary he was making at dc uh you know in order to do this but instead he was the one who helped forge the connection between milestone and dc that wound up actually happening um and so from 1992-1993 priest was kind of the uh the coordinator for milestone stuff at dc and then eventually Priest left DC entirely to go deal with his marriage issues um, in 93, which he's very kind of like open about that he kind of had to get out of working in comics entirely at that point. Um, and so he kind of pulled out of it entirely. So the core group of Milestone, by the time they actually got to producing things, was Dwayne and Dennis and Michael and then Derek Dingle. Um, and they brought in a bunch of other freelancers unlike you know this was happening at the same time as image but unlike image they didn't have a kind of an uh, uh, a mission an attitude about ownership right they were fully uh, you know it's the, the the creators were going to own this and they were going to hire freelancers uh you know as, as needed to work with them and they brought in a number of freelancers some of them were industry veterans and some of them were brand new. Industry veterans who joined them very early on were um, M.D. Bright, uh, Mike Gustavich did some work for them, uh, Madeline Blaustein, who had also been an editor at Marvel during the time that Dwayne was there, 
uh, came over and became one of the editors for um, Milestone. And then a bunch of kids, uh, John Paul Leon got his first start at, uh, at Milestone. Um, Yvonne Velez Jr., uh, Chris Cross, uh, John Rosen, right? Like these are all young creators, almost all of them of color, who got their starts at Milestone because Milestone kind of, you know, like made a point of reaching out and, and, and soliciting that kind of work. So they set up their operation. They don't want to go independent distribution or anything like that. So very quickly, Christopher Priest works out a deal where DC is going to handle the distribution um, uh, for all of the Milestone line, right? And so they uh, put together what they're what they call their 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 uh, promotion uh, put together a group called that was uh, called the Dakota Universe. And the Dakota universe would become kind of like the, you know, the, the shared universe of the entire Milestone line. Um, and that uh, Dakota City as the fictional city there that most of the stories took place in and around became kind of, you know, like the core, uh, the core setup. And so Dwayne and Dennis and Christopher put together what they called the Dakota Universe Bible before they got started. And it was basically a massive book hundreds of pages long that was a description of all of the backstories and how they intertwined character designs all of this stuff just an enormous amount of detail before they ever put out the first comic you know saying that this is the plan this is where these series are going to go this is how they all interconnect this is the you know the story of the universe and the way different things are going to work in the universe we're going to do this right up front we're going to make this world uh, almost pretty much unique among comic book lines in that we're going to build it on purpose, right? We're not going to let it just grow independently the way that both Marvel and DC did, let alone a lot of the other, you know, kind of like indie companies where they couldn't have anything put together like this. Um, but the idea that like, you know, everybody was working in the same direction. Everybody understood how things work. There was never going to be any kind of like continuity problems or debates about, you know, like how the magic worked or how science, you know, science worked, etc. It was all baked into this Bible. DC had never seen anything like this before. When this Bible started getting handed around in the offices at DC, it was blowing people away, right? It was just a a astonishing. Marv Wolfman at the time talked about like seeing this thing and just having his eyes just peeled by it, right? Of like, this is astonishingly good. And I've never seen anybody put in this level of creation. Um, so they set up these three core titles that would start the line. And those three core titles were... Those three core characters, which we will talk about next episode. Come back next time where we will finish up uh, talking about Milestone Comics and how that whole run goes and where those characters are at today. Thanks so much for joining us. I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night. Thanks for coming. <laughs>